Well, Lieutenant Colonel William Travis and the other defenders of the old Spanish mission here in San Antonio knew that their situation had become hopeless. They had 189 men facing an army of almost 5,000 under the command of Mexican General Santa Ana. Travis, the young Texas colonel, was only 26, and he was a lawyer by profession. But he didn't have to be a seasoned military man to know how this would turn out. Without reinforcements coming, it was just a matter of time before they would overwhelm the defenses of the Alamo and everyone inside would be killed. Colonel Travis gathered his fellow defenders and reportedly gave a speech saying they could fight, they could flee, or they could surrender. Now, having seen the Mexican army raise the red flag of no quarter, they knew that surrender meant death, but at least it would be a quick death by execution. An attempt to flee offered a slim chance of escape, but chances were better they would be captured and then brutally tortured and, and killed. The last option of staying to fight was also a guarantee of death, but it offered the chance to at least further delay the enemy and ultimately to sell their lives at a high price as they ended up killing or wounding over three times their number. At the end of his speech, uh, Colonel Travis reportedly took his sword and drew a line in the dirt, and he called on all who were willing to stay and fight to step across that line. A few stepped across quickly, but the rest would have trickled across. There was no stampede as every man knew that stepping over the line was a vote for his own death. Jim Bowie, the co-commander, was so sick he was lying on a cot and had to call for a couple of men to carry his cot over the line. Finally, there was only one man left, a French soldier of fortune named Louis Moses Rose who chose to leave. That night, Rose slipped out of the Alamo and managed to make it through the enemy lines, which is how we heard what happened. And as we know from history, the next morning the Mexican army made a pre-dawn assault being beaten back twice before they breached the walls and killed every defender within the Alamo. The men of the Alamo made a simple but decisive choice that day. They knew that once they crossed the line, there was no turning back. And because of their choice, others made a choice to join in the fight as the rallying call at future battles became, remember the Alamo. Because of their choice, Santa Ana and his army were ultimately defeated, allowing the Republic of Texas to be established, and later Texas became a part of the United States. Through the courage of a committed few, the course of history was changed. As we turn in our Bible today to Judges chapter 6, we're going to see something similar, where Gideon made a choice to cross a line from which there was no turning back. And by crossing that line, Gideon caused others to join the fight and would ultimately bring about the defeat of the enemy they were under. Now, before we begin reading in Judges 6.25, I want to remind you of the setting of the story, what we saw last week. In the first part of chapter 6, you'll recall that the Jews were suffering under the Midianites. They were under enemy oppression because Israel had once again chosen to turn their back on God, to serve the pagan gods of the land, and because of that, God gave them over to discipline them to try to drive them back to himself. When the people called out to God for deliverance, God raises up a man named Gideon to be the deliverer of his people. Now, you'll remember God called Gideon a valiant warrior, but he didn't look like that, as we saw in verse 11, because he was cowering in a hole. And in verse 15, he made all kinds of excuses as to why he could not be used by God. 
God promised Gideon he would be with him, and then God gave Gideon a glimpse of his power and presence. As you remember, the, the sacrifice he offered was consumed by fire. There was a burned spot on the rock. He built an altar there. It reminded Gideon of his encounter with God, and it would be at that place where his fledgling faith would be boosted. He builds an altar there, calls it Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is peace. And each time he saw that altar, each time he saw that burned spot on the rock, he would be reminded of his encounter with God. But having that altar to the true God there was also a problem because you'll remember that the city he lived in was devoted to pagan worship. In fact, his own father had built a, a pagan altar, a shrine in the backyard of the family home. And it was this altar that God first calls Gideon to destroy, as we'll see now as we pick up the story in Judges six twenty-five through 27. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on, that, on the top of that stronghold in an orderly manner, and take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants, and he did as the Lord had spoken to him. And it came about because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, that he did it by night. Now, Gideon had privately built his first altar to the Lord, but now he's being called to take a public stand. Before Gideon could go and declare war on Midian, he had to declare war on the god Baal that the people were worshiping, removing this idolatry that was the cause that was giving uh, God's people over to the Midianites. And as we think about that in our own lives, uh, there's a principle we can draw from this, and that's whenever we battle sin, whenever we're dealing with bad habits in our own lives, it's not enough just to deal with what's seen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to go after the root. We have to go in and destroy the root cause of the sin where we give God the rightful place in our life. For far too many uh, in life, we try to go through riding uh, the fence, straddling the line, so to speak, where we uh, are divided in how we follow God. He gets this part of me. He gets this part of my calendar while the world gets these other areas of our lives. And what God tells us is we're not to be divided in our worship. We're not to be divided in how we follow him. We are to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Another principle we see in our passage here is that while we're to confront sin in society, God says to make sure we start with the sin in our own lives. We have to start in our own backyard, as Gideon did. Uh, Jesus Christ said something similar to us in Matthew 7, 3, Through four, Jesus said, Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. As we deal with sin in society, it starts by dealing with sin in our own lives. As followers of Christ, we need to be uh, fully devoted. We need to not be playing both sides of the fence, as I mentioned. As Gideon goes to tear down this altar in his house, it says he takes his father's bull and a second one that is seven years old. Now, bulls were used as a sign of Baal. This was a, a pagan god, and a bull was one of the images that reminded people of their worship. 
And so as he goes, he takes his father's bull, and there's special mention of this second bull that's seven years old. Uh, We're not told specifically, but I think it's tied to what we saw last time. You'll remember that the Midianites had been oppressing Israel for seven years. There had been this pagan worship. And as the enemy was oppressing the land, it's a possibility. This was a special bull in that town that had been set aside uh, specifically to worship this pagan god. And so God uh, says, he singles out this bull and says, I want this one sacrificed. Uh, Both bulls are tied to the altar to destroy it. It's the heavy machinery of the day. They didn't have bulldozers. You couldn't bring in a big cat, uh, you know, diesel bulldozer here. So they tie these two bulls. Uh, It would have been huge rocks, stones that were mortared together. This isn't some little private shrine. It's a massive altar. Uh, Archaeologists uncovered another altar to Baal in this area that we're reading about. And that altar was 26 feet square and almost 5 feet high. And so this is a big altar. It takes 10 other men besides Gideon, two bulls, to destroy it. Uh, As I said, it's not a personal little shrine. We're going to see in a moment, this is where the people of the town would come to worship. Gideon also cuts down an Asherah. You'll remember an Asherah was pointing to the pagan goddess that was the the partner of Baal. And sometimes it was an evergreen tree. Other times it was a large uh, carved statue, a wooden pole that was set up. Uh, to represent her. And the name Gideon literally means a hacker or a hewer. It meant he was a woodsman. So this guy's skilled with an axe. And when God says, go cut down this tree, uh, Gideon makes quick work of it. And he uses the wood as firewood for the bull that was about to be offered. Now we see while Gideon's faith has been growing, there's still fear in him. Because uh, the fact is, he does this under cover of darkness. Verses 28 through 30 tell us, Uh, why he was afraid. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down, and the Asherah, which was beside it, was also cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar, which had been built. And they said to one another, who did this thing? And when they searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die, for he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he has cut down the Asherah which was beside it. Now we see how devoted these people were to these pagan gods. First it says they they got up early in the morning. They're there uh, early to worship. And second, as they see the destruction, they say, hey, whoever did this will die. Now Gideon had 10 servants helping him, so it didn't take long for somebody to cave in, right? As they bang on the door of his father's house and they say, hey, who did this? Did you hear something going on in the night? Uh, one of the servants says, well, well, Gideon did it. And so the mob goes to his father and says, Gideon must die. Now, it's ironic to read this because what God's law says in Deuteronomy chapter 13 and verses 6 through 10 is that if you worship a pagan god, then you shall die. But here the people are worshiping a pagan god, and they say because somebody worshiped the true god, this guy has to die. Now, the reason for that is you'll remember in Judges 5.8, we saw new gods were chosen. So the people have forgotten God. They've set aside the true God of heaven, Yahweh. They've set aside his law, and they've started to worship these pagan gods. Now, we see these pagan gods uh, are not only false, but they're, they're powerless. They can't even take care of themselves. Uh, God talks about this in Isaiah chapter 44. There, uh, Jehovah mocks the worship of these pagan gods on the earth. He says, have you guys ever stopped to think about how dumb you look when you worship these false gods of the world? 
He said, you go out and you take a piece of wood. You cut down a tree, you get this big log, and then you come in and you carve an idol out of half of the tree. And then he says, with the scraps of it, the other half of the wood and the the shavings, you turn around and you cook your food over it. And he says, this is your God? This is what you're worshiping? And in verse 31, we see that Gideon's dad finally has the light come on. He thinks about this himself because he says in verses 31 through 32, But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because someone has torn down his altar. Therefore, on that day, he named him, that is his son Gideon, Jerubbabel, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he had torn down his altar. See, Joash has a moment of clarity himself. He says, you know, this is kind of dumb, isn't it? We've built this altar. We've erected this uh, worship pole to this goddess. We say these are powerful gods and goddesses. And if they were really gods and goddesses, couldn't they take care of themselves? If somebody were coming to destroy uh, their, their representation of who they were, wouldn't that god or goddess rise up and take care of it themselves? He, he could have added here, and shouldn't they be taking care of us? For the past seven years, the enemy has been coming into the land and defeating us. You know, when it comes to God, the true God of heaven, he, he takes care of himself. There are times we see where God chooses to defend his own honor and he rises up. An example of that is in 1 Samuel 5 and 6, where the Philistines had gotten the Ark of the Covenant after Israel was defeated. And it says everywhere that the Ark went, God caused tumors and boils to break out on the enemy so that they said, get this thing out of here. You can read in 2 Samuel 6, 6, where a man uh, was struck dead just for touching the Ark because, again, it was the sin of the people for not following the instructions God had given on how the things of God were to be treated as holy. When it comes to treating the things of God as holy, you can read in Daniel chapter 5, and you can see what happened at the drunken feast where the enemy brought out the vessels from the temple and they began to praise the pagan gods drinking out of them, and God caused the fall of that nation. Joash says, hey, a true God should be able to take care of himself. So leave Gideon alone. Let's see what happens. Let's see if these gods are really real. Joash even throws gas on the fire to tempt the pagan gods. He he changes Gideon's name to Jerubbabel, which literally means let Baal contend. He says, hey, Baal, I'm putting a target on my boy. I want you to see my son is now, uh, his name now mocks you. If you're really God, then kill him. Let Baal contend. The people step back. They wait for fire to fall. And as they watch and wait, nothing happens. It shows Baal and Asher are false. They're powerless gods. And from that moment on, Gideon became a living witness to the absurdity of these false gods. Everywhere he went around town, people would call him Jerubbabel. And it would be a reminder to people of, let Baal contend. There's a target on his back. Where is this god? When is this god going to do something about it? While the wood they had worshipped was nothing more than a pile of ashes from the sacrifice that had been offered to the true God, Yahweh. You know, last week we talked about the first altar Gideon had built. Remember that burned out spot on the rock, the, the new altar he had erected. Every time Gideon saw that, it would be a reminder to him of the true God, of his encounter with a living, powerful God who showed up. 
And we talked how we as believers in this day have something even better. We have the cross of Jesus Christ that reminds us we serve a living God. A God who was buried in a tomb, but he rose from the dead three days later, showing he could conquer sin and death and Satan. We serve a living God, a holy God, a powerful God. And as you think about your own life, what are, what are those stones, what are those stories, what are those symbols you have that remind you of the God you worship, of a God of power, a God who is alive, a God who can, can rescue and deliver you? Do you have any of those? Do you have those stones of remembrance? Maybe you've sung one of the old songs that talks about your Ebenezer. You'll raise your Ebenezer. If you've ever wondered what that means, it means you're raising a monument, a stone of remembrance. Do you have anything like that in your life? Things that when you see it, it reminds you of your encounter with God. It reminds you of your time when you came to faith. When we baptize somebody, it's a, it's a picture of the burial and resurrection of Christ. They're, they're reminders to us of God and his power. I have several things in my own life that I use that, that are reminders to me when I see them, uh, when I hear them. It, it, it just it reminds me of, of God and what he's done. The names of my children are, are one of those. You've heard my story with my wife and I. We went through 10 years of infertility. We struggled with uh, being able to have babies. We tried to foster. We tried to adopt. God closed all the doors. We didn't know what God was doing. We cried out to God. We asked for his grace and mercy. Would you open the womb of my wife? Would you grant us children? Would you give us uh, babies that we can raise, either through fostering or adopting? And in every case, the doors were closed. We didn't know what God was doing. But then, 21 years ago, a little bit more than 21 years ago, God blessed us with the birth of our first daughter, Sarah. We named our daughter Sarah Elizabeth. Her names are reminders, stones of remembrance for us. The name Sarah comes from Abraham and Sarah. You'll remember in the Old Testament, Sarah was barren. They were unable to have children for decades. And then God opened Sarah's womb and gave them uh, the blessing of their son Isaac. The name Elizabeth comes from John the Baptist's mom. Elizabeth and Zacharias also were barren. And they sought God. They wanted a baby. And God ultimately blessed them with their son, John the Baptist. So we named our daughter Sarah Elizabeth, two barren names that remind us of God's grace. And then over 18 years ago, God blessed us with our second daughter, Hannah. Hannah is another woman you read in the Bible in, in the book of Samuel who was barren, who was unable to have children, and God blessed them with the son, Samuel. So Hannah, Hannah Michelle is our other daughter. The, her middle name means God hears and gives. And then our son, Zachary, 16-plus years ago, was born. And we named him after Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. Again, a reminder of how uh, these men and women who had gone through barrenness were blessed. Do you have stones of remembrance like this? Do you have things where when you hear something, you see something? It reminds you of God and his past faithfulness. The Bible tells us to raise up these memorials, these, these times of remembrance, to, to bolster our faith, to have tangible reminders. And as Gideon saw the burn spot, as he saw the altar, as he saw this new altar that was built, it was reminders to him that there is a powerful living God that he serves when the challenges come. And the challenges were coming because we see in verses 33 through 35, then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves and they crossed over and they camped in the valley of Jezreel. 
So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and the Abizarites were called together to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout Manasseh, and they also were called together to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. You know, trouble often follows triumph. And here Gideon finds himself facing the eighth yearly invasion of the enemy into the land. In the first part of chapter 6, you'll remember we saw three times God promised, Gideon, I will be with you. And here we see that promise fulfilled as verse 34 says, So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Now the Hebrew word for coming upon Gideon is lavash. And it actually means to clothe. It's found in Genesis 28:20 of a man who puts on his clothes. It's, it's found in Isaiah 59:17 of a warrior putting on uh, the pieces, his suit of armor. So a literal translation here would be, "The spirit of the Lord clothed himself with Gideon." I want you to think of that picture for a moment. This morning, as you got up, as you got dressed, you were putting on clothing, and as, as you put on clothing uh, it's controlled by your body, isn't it? You know, I've got a shirt on, and as I move, my shirt moves with me. My shirt doesn't control me. I control it. And this is the picture uh, that's given here. It, it's a vivid picture. As the Holy Spirit fills and empowers Gideon, it guides him from within, and, and it's God's Spirit that literally gives him the victory. Uh, and the same thing happens in our life. We've talked about how as believers we're sealed and indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, as humans, we're not passive garments. We have a free will. We can quench the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, the Scripture warns us. We can go against the things that God tells us to do. But the picture that is given here is that that we are clothed, literally, uh, the clothing that, that God wears. We are his hands. We are his feet. We are his mouthpiece as we go about uh, our lives in the world. I had a professor in seminary uh, Dr. Howard Hendricks. He's home with the Lord now, but we affectionately called him Prof. And Prof had a prayer that he would pray, and he shared it with us on numerous occasions. Each morning he would get up, and Prof would say, Lord, here I am. I want to be your suit of clothes today. I want you to take me and use me, Lord. Lord, put me on and walk around in me today. Isn't that a great prayer? Is that a prayer you're willing to pray? Are you willing to say to God, put me on, walk around in me today, Lord, fill me, use me, take me as I am, use me wherever and in whatever way you would like today? Are you willing to turn complete control of your life over to God and to do as he leads? Now, I know, I know we're we're afraid to pray a prayer like that, aren't we? Because we think, well, as soon as I tell God that, he's going to say, I've got you. And he's going to send you to be a missionary in Siberia, right? He's going to say, I'm going to put you where you don't want to be, you know, those those type of things. Friends, that's not how God works. The Bible tells us God gives us the desires of our heart. God will take and change our desire to match his will when we offer ourselves to him. It could happen that God sends you to Siberia, but it won't happen without God first changing your desire. So that's what your heart is. Often the way that God works is he lights a fire in us and he starts to use us right where we are. He says, I want you to serve as a missionary in your school, in your workplace, in your home, in your neighborhood, right where you are. 
I want you to be my suit of clothes. I want you to walk around. I want you to speak for me. I want you to represent me. Each one of us is gifted and designed by God for different purposes. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm not telling you God's going to call you to full-time vocational Christian ministry. Vocational Christian ministry means you're a, a, a pastor, a, a, a director, an administrative assistant, a facilities person, a, a missionary. God can use you to work for a church, to work for a Christian ministry like Youth for Christ or, or other ministries, but God uses you to work for him in a secular context as well. There is no differentiation between sacred and secular. You can be just as much a missionary for God uh, across the cubicle in your office as you can be by going across the ocean to serve in another country. We're not all called to minister in that way. We are, though, all called to minister right where we are. Now, as you think about what that means, uh, I want to give you this picture. Think, Think for a moment about your kitchen in your house, your apartment, wherever it is that you live. And as you walk into the kitchen, you see there's a variety of appliances. There's an oven, there's a dishwasher, there's a mixer on the counter maybe. You've got all these electric utensils, toasters, various things in your kitchen. Each one has a different purpose. But each appliance, while it has a different function and purpose, has one thing in common. For any of them to work, they have to be plugged in to a power source. They have to be plugged in because if they're not, they all do the same thing, which is nothing. And it's the same with us. As you think about your life and what it is that allows you to serve God and to to do his work, uh, it's not based upon what we can do. Here's a picture that shows what some of us look like. (laughs) Right? We, We plug ourselves in and we say, okay, I don't know why nothing's happening. But the picture that God has for us instead is that we need to be plugged into a power source. And when we're plugged into his power, multiple things can be plugged in. Multiple lights can be shown uh, through our life. And this is the, the, the image that God wants. And as Gideon becomes God's suit of clothes here, God uses him. He gathers an army to fight the Midianites. Now, as we read the list in verse 34 through 35, you see that the first to respond are the Abizarites. These were his own family clan. Uh, This was his father, his uncles. This was his cousins. These were the people who just a moment ago were saying, we're going to kill you, Gideon. And now his family's following him. And then it moves out from the Abizarites to the tribe of Manasseh, his, his clan around him. You know, some of you here, or those of you who are worshiping online, may be just like Gideon at the moment saying, I'm the only believer in my family. I'm the only person who knows the Lord in a personal way. I'm the only one in my family following God, and it's hard. Friends, I know what that's like. When I was 16, I came to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I had been raised Roman Catholic. I was in church. I knew something of God, but I didn't know about his grace. I didn't know about a personal relationship with him. And when I came to that personal faith in Christ, understanding salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, uh, I was suddenly ostracized in my family. And as I shared the gospel with others in my family, As I prayed for my family, as I stood for Christ, uh, God began to move in my family. My mom was the first one to come to personal faith in Christ as well. 
I have five brothers and sisters. I personally had the privilege of leading four of my five siblings to the Lord. And ultimately, my father, who I've shared with you before, was an abusive man who kicked me out of the house at the age of 16. I led him to the Lord later in life. And some of you are in a scenario like that where you're saying, I'm the only believer in my family. Maybe you've been raised in a background uh, where people don't know the Lord. You may have come out of a uh, background where it's not even a, a, a following of the true God like Jehovah's Witness or Mormons or others that, that use Christian verbiage, but they don't know Jesus Christ as God's son, the one who was sent to save the world. And so as you stand for Christ, you can be like Gideon. Suddenly, not only is his own family following, then larger, the entirety of the tribe, but we see the neighboring tribes, Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, Judges 7.3 tells us that ultimately 32,000 men respond to the call to come. It shows what just one man, one woman, one boy, one girl standing for Christ who says, I'm going to cross the line. I'm going to represent Jesus can do in the place that we are. Because Gideon crossed the line and says, I will follow God. There's no turning back. 32,000 others also turn to Christ or turn to God. They don't know Jesus yet. And as you look at your life today, I want you to ask yourself, have you made that choice to cross the line and say, I'm following God. There's no turning back. Some of you have sang that song that says, even if no one else follows me, I'll follow you know, Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Friends, if you've not taken that step of faith and, I, and, and you understand your need for Jesus today, then turn to God. Turn to God and say to him, God, I'm a sinner. That means you're acknowledging that you're far from God, that you've failed at some point in your life. You've made mistakes. You haven't lived a perfect life. That's what it means to be a sinner. And the Bible tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because we're sinners, Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. God says, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. And we're lost without Christ. But when we come to faith in Christ, when we accept his death on the cross in our place, his death is the payment for our sins. It says the account is closed. The penalty has been paid. And we are welcomed into the family as a son or a daughter of his And once you come to faith in Christ, making him your personal savior, we're told that when we cross that line of faith, God says our lives are to reflect our commitment to Christ. We're not to live like those in the world. You can read Ephesians chapter 5. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. It says as we cross the line of faith, where there's no turning back, we're to turn our back on our old way of life and walk in fellowship with Christ. As we walk in the light, as we serve as an example, others will see it. They will be drawn to the light, and it will show them the way home to Jesus. As one who has come to Christ, I want you to ask yourself, are you standing for him, or are you still trying to play both sides of the field? Are you straddling the line this morning, or have you crossed over that line of faith? 
Some of you will remember a baseball player by the name of Brett Butler. He used to play for the San Francisco Giants, but then when his contract came up, he was a free agent, and he ended up signing with the Los Angeles Dodgers, who were cross-state rivals. Now, the first time that Butler was back in San Francisco uh, to play, uh, the fans there greeted him with a mixture of boos and cheers. Some were happy to see their old hero. Others were mad that he was now on the opposing team. But... uh, All the cheers suddenly turned to boos when Butler walked onto the field and he hugged Los Angeles manager Tommy Lasorda in front of the crowd. Now, at the press conference following the game, they asked him, they said, why did you do that? You knew that that would alienate all of your former fans. And and Butler made this statement. He said, I did it to turn a page in my career. I'm an L.A. Dodger now. I'm not a giant. I'm not a giant anymore. That just kind of solidified it. I wanted them to know I'm a Dodger. Friends, if you're a Christian, have you done what Butler did? Have you hugged Jesus, so to speak, in front of your friends, your family, your coworkers? Do those who used to know uh, you as the person that went out partying or running with them or doing other things say, something's happened, you've changed? You're not the same person anymore. What happened? Have you hugged Jesus in front of your family and friends, letting them know you've changed teams? You know, when a player in sports changes teams, not only do they change the uniform, the externals, uh, when they take the field, they don't keep playing for their former team. In fact, often they will play harder against their, their former team. And for those of us who have crossed this line of faith and and have come to Christ calling ourselves Christians, God calls on us to stop playing both sides of the field. Instead, he wants us to say to the world, we belong to Jesus, and there's no turning back. As we end today, we're coming to the communion table. As we come to the communion table, it reminds us of what Jesus Christ did to save us. It reminds us that when Jesus Christ came to the earth, he knew he was going to the cross. He would have to cross over a line at some point and give his life. He knew what it would mean. He knew what it would cost him. As you came in, you uh, picked up an element like this. If you missed this as you came in, just raise your hand. We have some ushers who will give you uh, a communion element. There's somebody over here that needs one. Anybody else, raise your hand. There's somebody on this side. Uh, If you're at home, you can take and prepare these elements. As you peel back this top layer, there's a little wafer, a piece of bread. And what this wafer represents is the body of Jesus. It represents how when Christ came, he took on flesh and blood, knowing that he would have to go to the cross, that he would have to give his life, that he would suffer and die to pay the penalty of death. Remember, Romans 6 tells us the wages of sin is death. Somebody had to pay the penalty who did not owe it, and that was God's son, Jesus, who was perfect, sinless. And he went to the cross, and he willingly gave his life for you and me, dying to pay the penalty of death for our sins. As you hold this bread, it represents his body given for you and me. As you take and eat it, thank God for the gift of his son. Thank him for his grace, the body of Christ, which was given for you. Eat it in remembrance of him.
Now, as you peel back the next layer, be careful not to spill it on yourselves. This grape juice represents the blood of Jesus that was spilled for you and me. It represents his willingness to shed his blood. The Bible tells us in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And there were offerings made before Christ came. There were bulls and goats and sacrifices in the temple. But Hebrews also tells us those things were not able to remove uh, the penalty. Only Christ. Only Christ who came and died for you and me could do that. It's why John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said in John 129, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus gave his life for you and me so that we could have the gift of eternal life. The blood of Jesus, drink it in remembrance of him. We join me, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your son, whom you sent to come and die for us. Jesus Christ, we thank you that you willingly took that step, taking on flesh and blood, walking this earth and ultimately going to the cross, giving your life so that we could have the gift of eternal life. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you were sent to fill and indwell us and empower us. And as believers in you who have been clothed, literally filled and empowered and dwelt by you, may we be your hands and feet, your mouthpiece in the places you'll send us as we leave today to our homes, our schools, our military bases, to our workplaces, to the neighborhood, and to places we might even just cross paths with a stranger. And would we be willing, God, to be your light in the darkness, to be your messengers of, of grace, to share the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. God, we thank you for the gift of eternal life. We thank you for the gift of grace that gave us that gift. As those who have received that gift, may we be messengers of peace and hope, in the world in which we go. Thank you again, God, for your great love for us. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.